Good morning. Would you please open your Bibles to Hebrews 4, Hebrews chapter 4, and as you turn there, I'm going to release the five to eight-year-olds, those who would be going up uh, for the children's hour uh, from ages five to eight can be released uh, to go up with our children's ministry team at the back. They've got their hands raised, and uh, they're wearing the black vests, and they'll be happy to take uh, those kids up uh, to sit in the children's hour. Uh, while, while they're leaving, I just want to uh, share with you, if uh, you've been wondering, and maybe you've had this question, why do we do what we do in our worship service, in congregational worship, uh, the various different parts of our worship service, and you've wanted to understand, but you didn't know who to ask, uh, well, I've got good news for you. Uh, it's all here in the bulletin now. So we've put in uh, an explanation there of the order of service and the various parts of the worship service uh, so that you can understand Uh, why we do those particular things in worship. And so this will help you again to participate in worship in an informed way with understanding. I just want to commend that uh, to you as well. So Hebrews chapter 4, if you would uh, join me in prayer just one more time. Heavenly Father, would you lift our eyes this morning to see your beautiful heavenly kingdom and your glorious Son. May we hear his voice who rules the winds and the waves in our troubled souls. Give me strength. Enable me to serve in the strength that you supply. Show us your rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wondered what it would feel like to finally rest? To finally arrive at that place of relaxation where all of the pressures and all of the troubles that weigh you down are done and you can have peace. You know, we experience cycles of this uh, for many of us every year with vacation, annual vacation, the hustle and bustle and busyness and trials of life and work, and you're waiting for that time when you can get home at last, and you know, it might be multiple flights, you catch two flights or three flights, and then a train, or then a drive, and then the drive back from the airport, and then you sit down in the chair and like, vacation. One of the trials of the last two years is many of us haven't been able to go on vacation, go home, and rest. But even vacations, when you have them, are short-lived. Soon a week passed, two weeks are passed, you barely began resting, and then you've got to go back, back to the grind. It comes and it goes, and makes your heart long for something more, and so then you begin to feel, oh, one day I'll finally retire. Some of you are nearing that day, nearing that age of retirement. I'll retire, and then at last, I will rest. But then you get into retirement, and the creaking of old bones, and all of the ailments that come with old age, and all of the various pressures and trials that you did not think would be there, begin to encroach on your rest. 
Well, friends, if you're longing for rest, I've got good news for you this morning. And it is this, that God has prepared true and ultimate rest. He promises true and lasting rest for his people. And he calls us, invites us to enter this rest forever. This rest is what the author of Hebrews shows us in our passage today. You see, these early Christians who heard this message, they were faced with all kinds of pressures, trials and temptations of various kinds, afflictions, and these trials caused them to take their eyes off of their glorious destination. And many had begun to wander from the path. Some had even begun to limp or had stopped walking altogether. And we too face the same temptation. We lose sight of the glorious rest that God sets before us. We lose sight of the destination. And in doing so, we fail to face the danger of falling short. We begin to grow weary and limp in this journey. And what the author of Hebrews does for us today is he wants us to grow in a holy fear and an eager desire that none of us fail to reach our destination, our rest. So the author today picks up where he left off last week. You might remember from Hebrews chapter 3 last week, he quoted at length Psalm 95, and then he gave us an exposition of this psalm and was applying it to our lives, to the Christian church. And he showed us last week from Psalm 95 the admonition, he admonished us not to be like the wilderness generation of the people of Israel, not to follow their bad example of unbelief and disobedience. This week, the author continues this exposition of Psalm 95, and this week, instead of pointing us backwards to the wilderness generation, more so, he points us forward to the rest that God promises. That generation was promised a rest in the promised land. They failed to enter it because of their unbelief. And now the author tells us, you, we, have been promised a rest from God, true and lasting rest, even better than the promised land. And he says, don't fail to enter it. He wants to tell us more about this glorious rest that God has prepared for those who love Him. And so as we look at our text today, I want you to see the structure of this passage first, right? Uh, you have two commands. We're looking at verses 1 to 11. The first command is in verse 1. Both of these commands use the words, let us, all right? So verse 1, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands... Let us fear. And then in verse 11, he says, Therefore, let us strive. So you have two commands there, verse 1 and verse 11, on either end. And then in between, in verses 2 to 10, he explains to us more of what God's rest is. So what kind of structure is that? Two commands on either side, something in the middle. You're all familiar with this by now. It's a sandwich, that's right. And you're wondering how many of these sandwiches we're going to have. Well, God's sandwiches in His Word are delicious. And they are not just delicious, they are nourishing for our souls. So everybody can say together, sandwiches are good for you. Let's say sandwiches are good for you. All right, so we're going through this text again with the sandwich. Let's read. 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So as we go through this passage, I'll begin with the first command in verse 1. Then we'll look at the middle section by using three questions to understand and unpack what the author is speaking about rest. And then we'll close with the command in verse 11. So first command, verse 1. Let us fear. Let us fear. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You know, there's this phenomenon that is becoming increasingly common in the world today. Uh, you might be familiar with it. It's uh, coincided with the rise of social media over the last two decades, and it's called FOMO. FOMO. Uh, the term began being used around 2003 and made its way into the Oxford English Dictionary around 2013. And FOMO is an acronym which spelled out says fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. It's the anxiety that many experience, especially in the younger generation, of seeing something on social media, maybe on Instagram or on Facebook or Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, whatever you use, and uh, you see something and then you f feel this anxiety of, I don't want to miss out on this experience. I don't want to miss out on this information. I don't want to miss out on being included in this group or whatever. And so it leads to untold amounts of uh, stress in people's lives. Well, the author here in Hebrews 4 is calling us to have a different kind of FOMO. It's not a self-centered uh, FOMO or fear of missing out on selfish things. It's an others-centered FOMO, a fear of missing out on actually something very good and glorious. He wants us to have a fear of missing out on the good, glorious rest that God promises us. And it's not just a fear for ourselves, for each of us, individually, that I will miss out. But it's a fear that anyone else 
in the community of faith, anyone else in the family that is the local church would miss out. We don't want them to miss out on what God has promised. Not just a fear that I will, but that anyone will. Did you see that? Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And he wants us to know that the possibility of missing out is very real. It's very real. Look at what he says in verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the gospel, the message of good news, is not just a message that is in the New Testament. No, the gospel has always been present in Scripture. Salvation was always, by God's grace, through faith, even in the Old Covenant. And what the author is telling us is this people who were in the wilderness, that wilderness generation of the people of Israel, who failed and died in that wilderness and failed to enter the promised land, they had the gospel preached to them, just like we have had the gospel preached to us. And yet it failed to profit them because they disbelieved God's promises. Think about everything that they saw. They experienced God's great rescue and deliverance in the land of Egypt. They were in back-breaking slavery. God raised up a deliverer, Moses. God performed amazing signs and wonders. They came to the Red Sea and walked through on dry ground with walls of water on either side. They saw God's miraculous provision in the wilderness for them to eat and drink. They received God's good commandments, His law. And they had this promise of entering the promised land, the beautiful rest that God had promised to them, which would be like a re-entry into the Garden of Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey, where they would live in God's presence. And they responded with unbelief. And so all of them failed to enter it, barring two, Caleb and Joshua. That entire generation died without entering the promised land. And the author tells us, we have had good news preached to us just like they did. In fact, we've seen even greater things. They lived on, on this side of the promises of God, waiting for God's full and complete deliverance. We have seen God the Son himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came, took on our flesh, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns over all things. We have experienced his word coming to us, the power of his new creation, bringing us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have tasted the powers of this age to come. And we will fail to reach this promised rest if we disobey and disbelieve. And he says, let us fear. Let's make sure that no one falls aside or gives up on the journey. Let's pick each other up and keep going. You know, some of you, especially those with families, have had this experience in airports, especially when you're flying transit. It tends to be common. I don't know why. Maybe someone will explain to me someday why it is that when you're traveling, especially as an entire family, and you're flying in transit through a particular airport, that the gate that you arrive in is always somehow on the very opposite extreme of the gate that you have to depart from. 
Ever had that experience? We, we had that, we've had that a few times, and I think of one particular instance where this happened, where we were traveling from India back to the United States, and we were flying through Germany, through Frankfurt. I won't say what airline it was. Uh, but we were traveling with, the girls were three and under, all three of them, three girls, three and under. Carissa was like six months. And uh, we landed in Frankfurt, and then as soon as we get off the plane, I need to go party. And, you know, each of them goes, and we finish the party rituals there. And then I'm looking at the gate that we have to get to, and, like, literally it was, I'm at gate A, and I have to get to gate, not Z, but double Z. <laughs> and we're running out of time. I was like, Nishika, I think we need to run. And so we began running. And we keep running. And we're running and running. And then, you know, and especially when you're traveling with your kids and a family, like, for some reason, the carry-on bags are feel like you're checked in bags, you know, there's this much stuff. And so I'm loaded like a mule with all of these bags, you know, diapers falling out this side and water falling out that side. And, you know, baby in the stroller trying to push the stroller as fast as it can go. All of us running. Nishika's a nursing mom. She's trying to run. And then the kids, you know, the, the younger two, they begin to give up. It's like, ah! And it's like, what do you do? Am I going to leave them behind? No, I want to catch this flight. And guess what? I don't want to catch this flight alone. I want us to catch this flight. So you pick up the three-year-old and then you pick up the two-year-old and with the three-year-old and the two-year-old and the baby in the stroller and the bags, you're running to get there. Heart beating fast, chest on fire, legs giving way, but you keep going. And then you make it to the gate and then she checks your passport and your boarding pass. And you all get on the flight. And you're like, oh, thank God. I know that sounds familiar. Friends, let us fear that no one misses the flight. That no one fails to reach, it, reach to the end. We have a mutual responsibility for one another. Just like a family. We want to take care that everyone makes it home. There are many in our church who have grown weary, who have wandered off, who have given up, giving up along the way, who are giving up along the way. And the author tells us, just like he told us last week, we're not just, you're not just responsible for your own salvation. We are responsible for each other's salvation. We are responsible for one another, all of the members of this church, to help one another Make it to the end. That means we need to pick one another up. We need to help one another along the way. If someone's grown weary or is limping, go help them. I love how one author put this. He said, a good church is not defined by the size of its building, the number of people attending, nor the size of its budget, nor the grandeur of its vision, we could add, nor the quality of its programs and ministries. No, by God's standard, a faithful church will be one that leaves no stragglers to lag behind or perish in unbelief. ECC 
Do we want to be, by God's standard, a faithful church? Where the strong help the weak, where the discouraged are encouraged to carry on, where those who are drifting are rescued. Let's leave no one behind. We've all got to make this journey together. Let us fear that anyone should fail to reach it. And you know, there are people missing. It should be a cause of heartache for us. If you pick up the members directory, March 2022 members directory, you'll see at the end a section, members in absentia. These are members whom we don't know where a lot of them are, and they've not been part of the church in any way, shape, or form for months and months. Are you going to pursue them? It's not just the pastor's and elder's job to do that, you know. It's, your, it's our responsibility as members. We've made a covenant with one another to walk together in brotherly love, to care for one another and bear one another's burdens, to teach and admonish one another as the case may require. We've made that covenant so that no one gets left behind. You know, I was so encouraged this week when in response to last week's sermon, uh, a sister from our church messaged me and said, you know, I noticed all of these uh, ladies have been missing from the church for months and months, and I called them, and and she gave an update on each one by name. Here's what so-and-so said, and I've encouraged them to come back to church. Brothers and sisters, let's keep doing that. Let's keep seeking after those who are losing their way. Let's keep picking one another up so that we all reach our destination, God's rest. Let us fear that anyone may fall short or fail to reach it. So we've looked at the first command, let us fear. But you'd have noticed that until now, the author hasn't told us what this rest is. What is this rest? When do we enter it? How do we enter this rest? And that's what the middle section of the sandwich from uh, verses 3 to 10 explain. The author unpacks for us the meaning of this rest. And we're going to look at the meaning of this rest by asking and answering three questions about the rest. And as we understand more what this rest is, our hearts ought to grow in an eager desire for it. So we'll look at three questions. What is the rest? When do we enter this rest? And how do we enter the rest? First, what is the rest? So I could define it like this. It is the blissful place of God's blessing and the joyful state of unhindered fellowship with Him. I'll put that for you again. It is the blissful place of God's blessing and the joyful state of unhindered fellowship with Him. The rest is both a place and a state, and by that I mean a state of being. It's the state of joy, of fellowship with our maker. It's the polar opposite of hardship 
and trials and pain, sorrow, sickness and toil. And at the same time, the rest is also a place. It's a place that we're all going to, where none of these things are going to bother us anymore. There will be no more sorrow, no more death, no more trials, no more sin. It's the place of God's blessing forever. In other words, it's heaven. It's heaven. And the author shows us what this rest is and how God has prepared it for us, basically by taking us through the story of the Bible. This rest was seen originally in the Garden of Eden, paradise, where Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship with God. God placed them in the garden and he blessed them, the text tells us. They were living in joy, in fellowship and blessing under God's rule. That was only temporary, as we'll see. They lost it. And then the rest is again seen in the promise of the promised land. That this promised land was going to be like a new Eden, where the people of God would enjoy God's blessing and live in God's presence. But again, even that was meant to be only temporary and a shadow, a preview pointing forward to a greater and more perfect rest. And that greater and more perfect rest is what we all experience in the heavenly kingdom of Christ. That's the final culmination of God's rest. So let's look at how the author unpacks this for us. Look at verses 3 and 4 there. He says, We who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works, that is God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So there is the initial appearance of this rest in the Bible. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. God had created the heavens and the earth by speaking in six days, and on the seventh day God rested from all his works. What does it mean that God rested? Well, certainly it does not mean that God went on vacation or that God ceased being God or that God stopped caring for his creation. No, what it means is that at the culmination of creation, after creating this universe, God entered into the enjoyment of all that he had made and the sovereign rule over his creation, a rule that has no opposition, no question. He sovereignly rules over this world, and he enjoys his creation. And Adam and Eve, the first human beings, our first parents, were brought into that sphere of God's blessing. God blessed them. He placed them in the garden, blessed them to live under his rule and blessing. They had this rest with God in God's presence, which God prepared for them in Eden. But it was lost. It was temporary. You see, they were tempted by the serpent, and they disbelieved God's word. They disobeyed God's command. They rebelled against God's rule. And so Adam and Eve were exiled, sent out from this garden of Eden. Not only that, in their sin, they plunged all of creation and you and I 
and this world around us into unrest. So that all of us come into a world that is broken and messed up. But what the author tells us is that God has still left a window, a door, a day to enter his rest. There is a day, a present today that was available in David's day when he wrote Psalm 95 that was available to the congregation to whom the author of Hebrews was speaking and it's available to you and me. It's available to us today. He shows us this in verses 5 to 7. Again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now what does that mean? That means that the author is saying God has appointed a day today to enter his rest once more. It was available to the wilderness generation. It was available to the people to whom David wrote Psalm 95. And it's available to you and I today. God still invites people into his rest. He calls us to enter his rest. Today, if you hear his voice calling you to come into his rest, dear friend, don't harden your heart, but respond in faith and obedience. Turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus. And you will enter God's promised rest. And then finally, the author shows us that the promised land itself was also temporary. It was not the final rest. Look at verse 8. He says, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So the passage that we read earlier, Joshua chapter 21, says that the people entered the promised land and God's promises and good word did not fail them. And he said that they had rest on every side. But what the author of Hebrews wants us to see is that that rest in the promised land was not final. It was not ultimate. It was temporary. It was anticipatory. It was a shadow, a preview, a trailer of something more glorious, something more ultimate, something more complete. You see, Joshua actually failed. Because if you read the book of Joshua, and many of you will read this over the next couple of weeks if you're following the Bible reading plan, at the end of the book of Joshua, you'll see they did not fully complete what God commanded them to do. They didn't wipe out all of the enemies that were still in the land. Many of those nations continued to dwell there. There were still Jebusites in the promised land that Israel did not drive out. So Joshua and the people failed in their mission. And then if you keep reading the story of Israel, you'll see that the people of Israel failed. They worshipped and served other gods. They turned away from the Lord their God. And they followed after other gods. They sinned in grievous ways until finally God judged them. And just like Adam and Eve were exiled, banished from the Garden of Eden, sent out of God's rest, so also the people of Israel 
were banished, exiled, out of the promised land, out of God's rest. No, the rest in the promised land was only temporary and only a shadow. You see, the Bible is telling us that we need a new and better Joshua who would give us a new and greater, a truer and more lasting rest. In fact, it's really interesting in the original language here in Hebrews and in the Greek text, the name Joshua is the same as the name Jesus. We need a new and better Joshua, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the rest that he provides is true and better and more lasting than the rest that Israel had in the promised land. And that's what the author concludes in verses 9 and 10. He says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This means that the promised ultimate rest, the Sabbath rest that God has intended from the foundation of the world is still available for us to enter. And when we enter it, it will be glorious. Just like God rested, what he's saying in verse 10 is just like God rested and rejoiced over all that he had made, over the glory of his completed creation. In the same way, brothers and sisters, you and I, we will rest. We will rejoice when our earthly labors are complete, when this life of faith and obedience and suffering is done, we will enter into his eternal heavenly kingdom with great blessing and joy. So that answers the first question. What is the rest? It's the blissful place of God's blessing and the joyful state of unhindered fellowship with him. The next question we need to ask and answer is, when do we enter this rest? When do we enter this rest? And the author unpacks uh, the entry into the rest for us uh, in three steps, three stages. So there are three stages of entry into God's rest. And the good news is they all begin with C. So stage one is conversion. Conversion. Look at verse three. For we who have believed enter that rest. So we enter the rest when we believe. When the Lord God shines his light into our darkened hearts, brings us from darkness to light, and we believe in who Jesus is and what he's done, we enter God's rest. And you might have a question there. You might be wondering, well, I thought that the, it seems like the rest was future. I thought this was a future reality. So how does it say that we enter the rest even now? And I want to say the answer is, is it present or is it future? The answer is yes, it's both. God's rest for the believer is both present, present reality in the believer's life, and a future reality to be entered in the future. Uh, it's a very important way of reading the New Testament uh, that we'll see in, in many things when we come to the New Testament. There's an already to the fulfillment of God's promises, and there's a not yet. Those are very important words to understand the New Testament. Already and not yet. So you think of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is among us. It's here. It, it has arrived already. But the kingdom of heaven is still future. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's not yet. It's still coming. The kingdom is coming. 
Think of the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. Old things are gone. Behold, new has come. The new creation is now. But is there a new creation coming? Yes. It's not yet. And in the same way, we speak of this rest. It's now and it's not yet. So even now, dear saint, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have rest for your soul in Him. No more need to worry about your eternal destiny. No more need to fear what the devil or this world is going to do to you. No more terror or the fear of judgment. No more living in slavery to the fear of death. No, we have rest for our weary souls, a rest that even the sufferings of this world cannot enter in and take away. We can say with peace and with joy, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And even now we have that rest and assurance in our souls. So I want to ask you, dear brother or sister, are you living in the rest that is yours in Christ? Or is your life marked by fretful toil and worry and anxiety and constant restlessness trying to find your rest in the things of this world and this life? You won't find it. It's found only in Jesus. And maybe you're here and you've never found that rest in Christ. And if that's you, I want to call you and invite you to come to Jesus and in Him find rest for your weary soul. The first stage of entry is conversion. The second stage of entry into this rest, believe it or not, is corporate worship. Corporate worship. If you look later in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, the author is speaking of the worship gathering of the church our worship service, this gathering, what we're doing right here this morning. And in regard to the gathering of the saints, he says this, Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Every week as we gather for worship on the Lord's day, we enter into God's rest. This gathering is a foretaste of the heavenly rest that we will enjoy forever. We experience it here. Heaven comes down to earth and meets us in this gathering. You know, there are uh, two views on how uh, Christians are commanded to keep this weekly pattern of rest. Two views uh, in uh, Christian church. So uh, one view is called uh, what we would call the Sabbatarian view. And this is a venerable view in Christian history. Uh, maybe some of you hold this position, and if, if you do, you're in good company. Many, many godly Christians uh, throughout history and around the world today uh, believe uh, this. And, and this is the view that uh, God commands us to keep one day in seven as a Sabbath unto Him as a day of rest and worship to the Lord. 
So on that one day in seven, we must gather with the saints for worship, and then we must spend the rest of the day free from worldly things, free from work and busyness, free from worldly amusements, and consecrate that one day as a day of worship and rest in God's presence, week after week. Now, that's one view. Uh, if that's your view, then Lord bless you. I do think that's a wise thing to do. Personally, I'm not persuaded of that position. My view would be the second view, which is called the Lord's Day position. So I'm not convinced that Christians today must keep a Sabbath day, one in seven, just like they did under the old covenant. And the reason I'm not convinced of that position is because of Romans 14.5, which says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I still think it's wise for believers to have a day of rest and worship. I just don't think that we must do that. However, one thing that both views, both these views fully agree upon is that corporate worship, gathering with the church, is not optional. Gathering with the church, physically assembling together in God's presence for worship, is commanded in Scripture. Both views hold that. Both views believe that this worship gathering, gathering as the saints, is indispensable for the good of the believer's soul and for our well-being. And without it, our souls wither and we begin to fail and fall away. Because you see, friends, this worship service is what prepares us, points us, gives us a foretaste and a preview of the heavenly rest that we will one day enjoy forever. It's pointing us forward. This experience prepares us for the ultimate experience and complete fulfillment of God's rest. When we sing together in congregational singing and lift our voices together as one, we are preparing ourselves for what we will do in eternity one day when we will be all gathered around God's throne, people from every tribe and tongue and nation singing together, lifting our voices and saying, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And we will sing forever together. Every time we take the Lord's Supper as we come together here and as we take communion and celebrate this feast and look back at what Christ has done on the cross, we are being prepared for the feast in heaven. We are getting a foretaste, an appetizer, a preview of that day when we'll be all gathered into Christ's heavenly kingdom, seated around his table, and the Lord himself will serve us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That glorious day when we will feast together in his heavenly kingdom. Every sermon that you hear week after week, you see the glory of Christ as God shows us who Jesus is and shines his light upon his word so that with the eyes of faith we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of that is preparing us for that day when one day we will see him face to face and he will say, well done my good and faithful servant and will wipe every tear from our eyes. This gathering prepares us for that day, dear friends. It prepares us for the third stage of entry into God's rest. Consummation. Conversion, corporate worship, consummation. Con the consummation of God's kingdom. When his heavenly kingdom will finally come. And he will put an end to all our sorrow and sighing 
and suffering. And there will be no more tears, no more fear, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain, no more affliction, no more persecution, no more heartbreaks, no more death, no more sin. When Jesus himself will wipe every tear from our eyes as we see him face to face. Are you not longing for that day? For that good and glorious rest? So we've seen what the rest is, when we enter it, and then we think of how beautiful and glorious this rest is, we have to ask ourselves the question, how? How can I be a part of that? How do we enter his rest? The answer is very simple, and it's right here in the passage. We enter through faith and obedience, through believing and following. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, Good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. The wilderness generation failed to enter God's rest because they didn't trust God's promises. And verse 6, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. They failed to enter because they didn't obey God's word. And so how do we enter? Well, by believing and obeying. And the question is, believing in what? Obedience to whom? Well, it's believing and obeying the one who makes this rest available to us. It's by believing and obeying the one who has gone before us and prepared this rest for us, who has made a way into this rest and invites us, calls us to follow. It's by believing and obeying the one who died to give us rest. Trust and obey Jesus. You see, we don't deserve, none of us do, we're all sinners we don't deserve to enter God's rest. What we deserve is eternal unrest. We come into this world as sinners. We live a life of sin and rebellion, all of us, in every single way. And we deserve destruction and eternal punishment. But Jesus entered into the wilderness and unrest of our world. God the Son, who from all eternity had perfect rest, took on our flesh, entered into our broken world, tasted our unrest, had no place to lay his head. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then he went into the deepest darkest unrest of all as he hung on the cross bearing upon himself the wrath of God the judgment of God due to sinners like you and me taking upon himself the judgment that we deserve so that we might have entry 
so that whoever would repent and believe in him might have rest. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and he says to you, even now, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your weary soul. And the great early church pastor Augustine once said, you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless unless we find rest in thee. So won't you come this morning to the only one who can give you rest, consecrate yourself to him, live your life trusting in his promises, resolve by his strength working within you to live in obedience to his word. Come to him. This is how we enter God's rest. And so we come full circle to the final slice of bread at the bottom of our sandwich, verse 11. Verse 11, let us strive. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Friends, the whole of Christian life is this. It is a looking forward to, a moving forward towards this glorious rest. We're not there yet. We're not home yet. The journey is long and the way is hard. And maybe you've been tempted to give up on the journey. Maybe you've kind of fallen by the wayside or grown limp. Maybe you've gone off the track and are pursuing rest elsewhere in other things that you'll never find. And the word of God speaks to you today, speaks to us today, saying today, Hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Don't shake off what I'm saying. Let us strive. Let us strive so that we all enter it. Just keep moving forward. Keep looking forward. We've got to say to one another and encourage one another and call those who are straying and pick up those who have fallen down and say, let's keep going. Keep on. Just a little longer, dear Christian. Just a little longer, dear brother, dear sister. And the worries and the toil and the sufferings of this life will be no more and we will rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious rest that we have in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord God, keep us faithful. May none of us fail to reach it. May we exhort one another so that we all make it to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.